Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week I sit down with Alexa Koenig, Executive Director of the Human Rights Center at the University of California, Berkeley. During our conversation, Alexa talks about her interests in human rights, war crimes in the 20th and 21st century, and the work of the Human Rights Center. All right, Alexa, well, thank you, first of all, for, for taking some time to uh, chat, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, I'd love to start by kind of learning about your your background and how you got interested in uh, human rights issues. Um, is that something that has sort of always been a part of your DNA and something you wanted to pursue from an early age, or how exactly did you get interested in that topic? The answer to that is really yes and no. Um, my mother's side of the family is a military family, so my mm-hmm. grandfather was a colonel in the U.S. Army, and Mm -hmm. my mom had grown up overseas. So I think this idea of looking at the world um, writ large and Mm -hmm. thinking about global issues was something that she had brought into our household from a very early stage. Most of our furniture was Thai from her time in Bangkok, and our pets' names were Thai, (laughs) et cetera. Um, On my dad's side, my dad's family worked for the U.S. government, and Mm -hmm. so I think this sense of patriotism, of um, really thinking about what makes the United States strong Mm -hmm. And how it can be constantly striving to be even stronger Mm. was something that um, was a big part of growing up. Another piece of it, though, was growing up just in the Bay Area, Mm. where there are obviously a lot of parts of the communities here that are named after Native American tribal groups that have lived in the region. Obviously, Mount Tamalpais, right around the corner, um, has a big impact, I think, on anyone who grows up in this area. And so this idea that... We have our own social issues that we've grappled with as a nation over time, some of which are less um, appealing to look at and to Mm. think about was something I was thinking about from a very young age. Mm. Is that something when you you look at the the sort of the progress or lack of progress in in the U.S. today? Are there there a couple issues that you look on favorably and say we've made significant progress in your lifetime on? And conversely, are there some where we really haven't? a really excellent question. I think it's hard to measure progress. So I think sometimes we see if we take a particular issue like um, history of race relations, Mm. you may see progress in some aspects of that, but you also may see a drowning or an obscuring of deeper issues that we've never actually confronted. Mm. So I think that's something where you've always got to celebrate those successes and continue to push yourself harder to think about what we're still missing. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the challenges, I think... uh, 9-11 was a big one for me. I was in law school when that happened, and I was studying constitutional law of all topics. And so thinking really critically about how we responded to an horrific event like 9-11 was something that from the very earliest stages of my kind of legal career, um, I felt we really needed to confront. And that's something that I haven't, I don't think that we have really dealt with yet as a nation, and we Mm. probably have quite some time until we do. And what are the things since 9-11? I mean, I, I know in, in doing a little bit of research on you before that you worked on, on some Guantanamo issues uh, with, with Berkeley. 
Um, it, it, is that the first thing that comes to mind in terms of a regression in the U.S.'s stand towards human rights in the world, or are, are there others that come more, more quickly to mind? The one that probably comes quick, most quickly to mind for me is actually dealing with a lot of the issues that Native American tribal governments have faced. Mm-hmm. So the first social justice issue that I really think of myself as having worked on was I worked for a number of the Indian, um, for the, a lot of the Native American governments here in the state of California. Mm-hmm. And I remember being very newly out of college and getting my first job doing public relations and being surprised to find that there were more than 100 tribal governments here just in this state alone. And the fact that I'd lived here my entire life and had never recognized sort of the infrastructure of that um, was something that was really shocking. And then one of the first assignments I had was um, I was working as a public relations consultant, and I went to this one tribal reservation. And I was there because all the news stations were coming out to do an interview because this tribe had just received electricity for the first time. And it was 1998 in California. And I remember being shocked that it was so late, so close to the 21st century. They still didn't have electricity. This was such a big story. And I remember talking to a woman who was going to be interviewed, and I asked her why this was such a monumental moment for her tribe. And she took me and she showed me a, um, a, a basically a place where her grandmother had used to live, and it was a trailer. And she t- explained to me how the tribe had used kerosene lamps for light and heat. And one night, the wind had blown through the reservation, knocked over the kerosene lamps, and unfortunately, she lost her grandmother that night. Mm. There was no infrastructure on the reservation to bring firefighters to put out the fire. There were no fire hydrants. Um, and this issue of not having basic services was a big deal. So getting electricity meant that Issues like this wouldn't happen going forward. But what shocked me even further was I found out that the electricity that was being provided for the reservation wasn't being provided by the state. It wasn't being provided by the federal government, but that it was actually another tribe that had recently gotten gaming and was using some of the surplus funds from that effort to provide that basic infrastructure for tribes that were located in remote regions that really didn't have a base of economic support. Mm. So it really left me wondering kind of who are the populations in this country that have mm. been overlooked and what are their basic needs that might be need to be communicated to people in positions to do something about it. Mm. And other than Native Americans, and I guess first we can talk about the sort of domestic problems or domestic right. issues that have, that have existed in this country for a long time. But it, aside from Native Americans, obviously the, the, the race relations is, is already a subject that, that you mentioned. Um, are there others that most Americans don't generally tend to think about when they think about human rights and the lack of just civil rights or human rights that are applied to certain segments of mm-hmm. Americans in our history? One of the big ones for me has been studying the history of eugenics and the eugenics mm-hmm. movement and the role that the United States played in actually doing early scientific testing, and I'm putting that with kind of air quotes around it, um, in some of the policy directions that we were headed even before Germany started to explore the potential for eugenics to improve the human race. Um, you know, I think beginning to, to realize, particularly today, that of course there's no way to perfect humanity, that what perfection is is obviously going to differ quite rapidly in the mind of individuals, if you even can start to pin that down. But the ways in which we have had policies of forced sterilizations of particular populations, the way we've defined those populations, the impact it's had on women's abilities to um, further generations. There are scholars like Goldhagen who have talked about this practice of eliminationism and the many ways in which genocide occur. And one of them is really this focus on the ability of human beings to procreate and and bring on new generations. 
And he talks about this particular practice as looking not only at genocide kind of in the moment, but the ways in which you kill off future mm-hmm. generations of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about the, the, genes- the uh, eugenics movement, specifically in, in the U.S. I, I agree with you that I think that's probably something that, that most Americans are not particularly familiar with. What's the root of that idea? I mean, is that is that a uniquely American genesis story where mm. we came up with that idea, or does that have roots somewhere else in the world? It has roots, um, I think, really in many different parts of the world. Wherever you have populations that differ from one another and they become competitive and comp- competing for resources mm. or prestige or whatever, you're going to see the, the origins of this um, kind of idea that one population is better and the other one needs to maybe get out of the way. Mm. That said, kind of the more recent history, looking at the 19th century, the gentleman who actually coined the term eugenics was a cousin of Charles Darwin, and he was really influenced by Darwin's writings on evolution and began to be obsessed with twin studies. So looking at what, how are people impacted by nature versus nurture? Um, how do you improve the human race? And he became really obsessed with this idea that maybe you could use law as a tool mm. um, to begin to really help push a society towards some kind of innate perfection. Mm. It, it almost seems like in, in situations like that where, as you mentioned, there are competing segments of the society who look different or act different or have different backgrounds, the the common human force for human rights or civil rights is almost the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. What is it about the last hundred years for all of its faults that have led to so many of the things, at least legally speaking, mm-hmm. that, that have led towards progressive human rights or civil rights in the U.S.? It's a really excellent question. Um, you know, I, I think the genesis of a lot of the human rights movement has been there for quite some time. You know, one early step towards thinking about how law can play a positive role certainly comes out of the Lieber Code in the post-Civil War era, mm. actually during the Civil War, where there was a body of law that was put together to regulate the actions of the military during the Civil War. Um, our origins of prohibiting sexual violence and conflict, which is just now getting traction internationally, really comes from that Civil War era where one piece of that law said that any soldier who was caught raping somebody could be shot immediately mm-hmm. if he refused to um, stop what he was doing. Mm-hmm. As far as anyone knows, that was never actually implemented, but at least it began to give the seed of an idea that... Um, people should be constrained in terms of what they can do to other human beings and mm. that law can be one mechanism for beginning to mm. show that constraint. I know one of your ex- one of your expertises or one of, one of your focus in your academic work is is in relation to war crimes of of a sexual nature. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how is the world doing in that regard and and are general western countries abiding by those ideas in warfare? Um, You know, I I think that's actually one area where we've seen a lot of progress, at least on paper. Mm -hmm. I think our understanding of how sexual violence occurs, who are the perpetrators, who are the victims, has greatly expanded, which means we have the potential to have accountability for a much wider range of wrongs than previously. So obviously, Mm -hmm. originally... And and still today, in some communities, it was seen as men rape women. And you didn't talk about men raping other men during wartime or women raping men um, or the the role that children played in any of this. Um, That said, even though on paper things have become much better, I think, too, we are still overlooking some basic ways in which it occurs that we need to be thinking about a little bit more critically. So one of the issues that I grappled with when we were doing our big study on Guantanamo detainees Mm -hmm. and looking at what they'd gone through, there were several men who were interviewed who said that they'd been raped. 
Well, that was in contrast to a lot of the reports that were coming out. I mean, there are some reports that have documented bona fide rapes, but the numbers we were hearing were bigger than that. And what I began to realize was happening was that for a lot of these men, what was they were actually having cavity searches, but the way at intake. And what would happen is that the intake was designed in many cases to set the detainee off, to like throw him off balance, to make him think that the military had absolute control. So it was often where the individual would arrive, his clothes would be cut off with a pair of scissors, there'd be a bunch of people around him, he'd be thrown to the ground. Um... And then eventually there would be a cavity search. Well, no one was translating for this individual in a language he could understand what was occurring. It was happened with tremendous force and quite a bit of violence with the idea of intimidating him. And so what he was perceiving as a rape was something that the military was perceiving as a very bona fide tool used during intake and detention. Mm. And so how do you begin to figure out how law, if law can be used as a mechanism for controlling this, um, how can law work? How is it failing to protect populations from things that they see as particularly egregious? These men would talk about how this was the worst thing that they experienced in detention. Mm. And for them, it really was experienced as a gang rape. Mm. Um, so I, I think we've still got some ways we need to be thinking about this going forward. Mm. How, how do you rank the U.S. right now in terms of, you know, all of the, the we're to take all the, all the countries in the world that, mm exists at, at the moment, where, where are we in terms of um, kind of what we should be holding up as, as virtuous and something we should be proud of? And, and where, where, in your judgment, do, you, do we need to go in terms of civil rights, domestic civil rights? It's hard to rank them, rank the United States. I do think that one thing that has been important historically is the role that the United States has played as a symbol of human rights. Mm. It's obviously been one of the largest proponents of human rights symbolically. And so many of the men that we interviewed also talked about how even though they were detained, and many of these are men that were released because there was no evidence that they had actually been engaged in terrorism, they said that they actually weren't angry at the Americans or at the United States, what they still felt that what the United States was a symbol of was so critical that it needed to continue. Mm. Um, that said, you know, I, I think this idea of American exceptionalism, America can be exceptional in two ways. It can be exceptional in the ways that it pushes for human rights. It's also exceptional in the ways that it's refused to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. So one big issue that came up during this post-war on terror or during the war on terror was this idea of bilateral immunity agreements that were entered into with foreign countries where essentially we began to make aid to these foreign countries contingent on those foreign countries saying that they would never you know, send U.S. citizens to the Hague or to um, any other tribunal for any kind of accountability for what was occurring. Mm. And I think we need to look a little bit more deeply at our identity and where we fit on that spectrum and whether we really are exceptional and if so, in what ways we want to continue to push for that exceptionalism. Outside of our borders, it, it seems like right now we're, we're kind of going through an interesting time with things that are happening in Russia, the drastic change in China. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are there wars or domestic violence or, or uh, war crimes that are being committed that don't get a lot of press in the U.S. that um, you at, at the Human Human Rights Center have, have learned about or have been alerted to? What kind of stories do most people not read about in the New York Times or elsewhere that, that might be important for people to be aware of? I think there are still 
discrete populations that are overlooked. Um, one of them still being sexual violence. I think if we look at the cases that have come before the International Criminal Court so far, the first case, the Labonga trial, really failed to address sexual violence at all in mm. the charges that were brought. In the second one, the Katanga case, we, there were no convictions actually for sexual violence, and that's a huge failing. Um, Kim Twee-Sealinger, who heads our sexual violence program, recently went to a number of different countries at the request of the UN to look at how um, individuals who are fleeing conflict, who are coming into refugee camps and camps for internally displaced persons, how well those camps are meeting the needs of sexual violence survivors mm-hmm. and how well they're preventing further sexual violence um, once people are actually there. I think the needs of not only those people who are displaced, but also the caregivers in those camps and how few resources are actually provided for them mm-hmm. is a story that is not well understood and really deserves more attention. Mm. A big issue here has really has been trafficking, and I think it's received a lot of attention in the media, but even little details about how trafficking works in context of displacement and in context of war, the full range of mechanisms through which it occurs, we, we know very little about. Mm. Mm. Is the rise of, of civil rights or human rights that countries grant their citizens generally correlated with the growth of their economy? I mean, is it, is it just sort of a natural law that as, citizens, as societies become more prosperous, mm-hmm. people, it, it, th- relationships are not necessarily viewed as a zero-sum game, that there have to be certain mm-hmm. laws or, or established rules that, that people are, interact with, or is that not necessarily your, your view? That's funny. Uh, there's actually a report that I read just yesterday that was on that very topic. Mm-hmm. So I think, I'm sure that's influenced my view, but it's, it's also consistent with what I'd believed previously. And it essentially showed that there is not a direct correlation mm-hmm. between GDP and the um, social indicators of how well a population is doing. Mm-hmm. And that's something, and they, the, the United States has been slipping steadily in terms of how well it provides for its population more generally. Mm-hmm even though it still does have such an impressive GDP. So that really suggests to me we need to be thinking critically about our policies around what we do mm-hmm. with the enormous wealth that the U.S. has relative to the rest of the world. What are our collective goals in terms of ensuring that the United States continues to be a leader on the global stage? Yeah. So you're the executive director of the Human Rights Center at Berkeley. I'd love to talk for a little while about the goals of, of the center. What what are its what are its missions? What are what are its research and capability? What 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 are its its long term visions or, or hopes for the work that it does? Well, it was started in let's see, nineteen ninety four. So we just had our twentieth anniversary. Eric Stover, who's our faculty director, has really been the person setting the tone and the pace and the policy mm. for us moving forward. We really see our mission as being about providing opportunities for individuals and populations that have not had much access to voice Mm -hmm. to give them a chance to hopefully influence policymakers. Um, So we've worked a lot with survivors of mass crime around the world and tried to think about how Who's been missing the information that those individuals have to tell about both what they've experienced, what they need, and what might what the world might need to put in place to make sure that the crimes that they've experienced don't happen again? Mm-hmm. Um, we often operate as a hub. The luxury of being based in a world-class university has meant that we're often seen as an objective player among human rights organizations. We don't necessarily think of ourselves as an advocacy organization mm-hmm. so much as a research institution. And so we're a- often able to bring together academics with people who are frontline responders at crime scenes, with people who work in international courts, 
um, and to bring together people from across disciplines. Mm-hmm. So we don't see law as, as the only tool for remedying human, human rights, but also thinking about how does public health play into something? How mm-hmm. does education policy um, bring together people from across disciplines to really figure out how to move something forward? Mm-hmm. Um, a big part of our mission is obviously also educating. And so we have a fellowship program that was our first program where we send out 10 to 20 students every year from across the UC campus to work with frontline human rights organizations. Mm -hmm. The nice part about that arrangement is it gives really low-cost, high-quality support to those organizations, and it also provides students who are getting a world-class education with a chance to get a real-world experience Mm -hmm. and build their networks and hopefully inspire them to take what they've learned and engage in it moving forward. Mm Are there, if, if someone were interested in, in becoming active in some of the organizations or nonprofits that you work with, are there two or three that, that come to mind that you highly recommend in terms of their research or their, their activity on the ground, um, as you mentioned, on the front lines in some of these circumstances? It really depends on the ways in which you hope to engage. One of Mm. our newest efforts is to work at the intersection of technology and human rights. Mm. And there are several organizations that are doing just impressive cutting-edge work, one of them being Witness, Mm. which has really been working on the issue of you have all of these people now who have smartphones around the world who are documenting crimes as they occur in real time and are trying to upload that information to social media sites, etc., to make sure that people are aware of what's happening and that there may be accountability down the line where mm-hmm. accountability is desired. So they're definitely one of the leaders. Another great one is Videre, um, which has done a fantastic job of figuring out how to make cameras small enough, um, how to capture information like this in a way that's relatively safe mm-hmm. so that information can be fed again into accountability mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, We've been working most recently quite a bit with the International Criminal Court Mm. and helping to figure out how to provide them with partnerships so that they have the most technologically sophisticated tools that they can possibly bring to bear um, on particular issues and investigate crimes in ways that they need to happen. Mm. And for people at the center that are concerned about decreasing the the amount of human rights violations in the world, If you could pick two or three that you could eliminate from the world, two two or three major causes of violations of human rights, would it be racism? Would it be religion? Would it be sexism? What, what are what are in your mind or in the mind of the of the center are, are really the key players that continue to perpetuate these sort of human rights violations in the world? That's tricky. I think they all have their root, honestly, in the same thing, which mm-hmm. is in not listening to other people, to not respecting other people, to not trying to empathize. Mm. I think the more that we can work on developing empathy, um, both domestically and internationally, the better off we'll all be. Mm-hmm. Because then we can put ourselves in someone else's feet and try and understand a situation from their perspective. Mm. So often, a lot of the conflict that we're seeing really comes from the fact that both sides feel deeply wronged. Mm. And until we can get at being able to understand how the other side sees the world, we're not going to be able to move forward on these issues. Mm. Are there things coming up in terms of international diplomacy that... Um, if if successful, you know, there's been a lot of talk mm-hmm. recently about how Obama's been engaging with a variety of different governments that we mm-hmm. haven't historically been talking to. Um, are, are, do you see those as signs of, of increased empathy or, or successes that diplomacy can can work in not leading countries to war? Mm-hmm. And if, if so, are there others that you're optimistic, whether it's the Israel-Palestine issue or others that um, are sort of coming up and, and if resolved would be a, a major success for, for peace and, and diplomacy in the world? 
Wow. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of different situations where I think we're finally taking steps to open lines of dialogue. Mm. And I think opening those lines of dialogue is the first critical step toward right. making any kind of progress. Um, you know, what we keep finding, Eric and I have been working on a book called Hiding in Plain Sight with another colleague, Victor Peskin, at the University of Arizona. I'm sorry, Arizona. And we keep finding that when you make progress, it all comes down to politics, mm. which often comes down to whatever the context is at any one given moment. So mm. things can radically change depending on what happens tomorrow. So before there was a 9-11, I think we were on a very different trajectory mm -hmm. um, in terms of our policy and our relationships with other countries than we were after 9-11. So while I'm certainly optimistic, and I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic going forward, um, it really takes... It takes all the NGOs that are out there that are pushing for progress. It really takes individuals continuing to try to understand other perspectives. And it takes these high-level diplomatic meetings to hopefully move us somewhere that we want to go. Hmm. Last question I want to ask you, yeah. and it, it touches on a word that you, that you just used, which is optimistic. Mm -hmm. How do you view the, the next 50 or 100 years in, in the world in terms of progress towards increasing the scope of empathy um, are you optimistic that, that the world is becoming a more sane and peaceful place, or are you rather concerned for a variety of different reasons? Both, and I hope I never lose both, because if we, if I became too complacent, I think, unfortunately, we wouldn't put so much of our heart and soul into what we're doing mm. every single day. Mm. But at the same time, what all the psychologists have shown through all of these horrific experiences that the world has had is at the moment you give up hope, everything's lost. Mm. So... The ability to hold on to hope is the thing that gets individuals through their detentions. It's what keeps presidents continuing to negotiate. And it's what keeps human rights organizations that are small, like ours, who can only have so much impact, mm. continuing to do the long hours and the long days and the work that we're doing day in and day out. Understandable. Well, Alexa, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.